Thank you. Before I start, uh, I want to tell you two things about myself that I think is important for you to know. When I think about something, when I'm reading something, since I'm a visual thinker, I've got this video going in my head. So when I teach, when I try to give a lecture, one of my jobs is to try and figure out how to get that video out of my head and into your head. The second thing you need to know about me is that my first quarter in college, I took some aptitude and interest tests. I was told that there are two things I should never go into, art and home ec. Well, how do I get pictures in my head out there for you to see if I can't do art? That's one of the challenges I had in trying to prepare this today. And all I can do is say, I hope that what I've constructed will work. I suppose I chose this topic because I've been watching my husband limp. First, because he needed knee replacement surgery. Thank you. And secondly, because he had knee replacement surgery. There were a number of things that he had to do while preparing for the surgery, and then a number of things he had to do after the surgery to go from limping to walking. But now he's able to walk without a limp. Elijah asked the children of Israel, I forgot, for some reason this is taking two clicks, All right. Elijah asked the children of Israel, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Oh, if our decisions were only so easy. Scripture tells us clearly that the Lord is God. But when it comes to understanding what it means to follow him, especially when it comes to policies and practices related to modern scientific and technological matters, the Christian community does a lot of limping, and not just between two opinions. We often find ourselves in numerous camps wondering how other Christians can possibly defend their positions when we are so certain that ours is right. What I'm going to try and do today is provide some biblical and theological rehabilitation exercises that may help us stop limping, or at the very least, to have fewer opinions to limp between. To do so, we're going to identify two foundational biblical truths and then look at some biblically-based core values and examine how different assumptions about their relative importance can bring us to different points of view. And I think before I continue, I'm going to go to this side because it's going to be easier. So, 
Let's begin with our first foundational truth. God's creation is good. It's good in fact. Thank you. God values it so highly that he has included it in his plans for redemption. The Apostle Paul tells us that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, this principle has several implications. First, God is not identified with creation or nature, as some religions in our secular society want to call it. While he is intimately involved in his creation, he holds all things together, Scripture tells us. He is also beyond creation. Thus, creation or nature is not to be worshipped. It is not sacred. Now, science could not develop in an animistic or pantheistic culture the way it has in the Judeo-Christian West because to do so would have been messing with God. The American poet E.E. E. Cummings criticized our Western approach when he wrote, Oh, sweet spontaneous earth, how often have the doting fingers of prurient philosophies pinched and poked thee? Has the naughty thumb of science prodded thy beauty? Our understanding of the distinction between creator and creation and our recognition of the value God places on the creation are important elements as we do our science. We develop our science consistent then with our Christian worldview. We don't see our work as the naughty thumb of science poking and prodding the beauty of creation, but rather as a way of understanding the awesome work of the creator, possibly even of bringing forth some of its hidden beauty, some of its unrecognized goodness. The second foundational biblical truth is that humans are created imago Dei, in the image of God. While sin has distorted that image, our new life in Christ means that God is at work in us, enabling us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, according to the letter to the Philippians. Now, we usually think of this promise from Philippians in spiritual and maybe moral terms. But I am arguing that uh, it also has to do with our intellectual life. That means it has to do with our scientific pursuits. Does the creator understand the structure and function of his creation? Absolutely. Does the creator understand the relationships and interrelationships between the parts of his creation? Yes, all right. Well, then, if we are created in his image, it's our responsibility to seek to understand these things as well. Not only does the Christian faith permit science, as I said just a few minutes ago, but it demands that we pursue science. For some of us, that means that we have to unravel the structure of some entity, or for others, it means determining the relationship between uh, bodies, or for others it means just keeping informed about what's happening in science. 
I've been working on an article for this uh, coming fall concerning scientific illiteracy in the U.S. And the level of Americans' ignorance is appalling. As Christian scientists and as Christian science policymakers who understand what it means to be created in Imago Dei, we must address this situation both for the sake of the nation and for the sake of the church. All right, so far we've looked at two foundational biblical truths. They provide the Christian context in the impetus or motivation for decision-making regarding science, technology, and public policy related to science and technology. In the analogy that I'm going to be developing, they are going to form the seat and the back of a chair. Now we're going to look at four biblically-based core values that must be considered when we make decisions. And we're going to think of these values as the legs on our chair. The first value uh, is the individual. And here I'm talking about any individual thing, not just a human being. In other words, this leg could refer to a newborn infant, or it could refer to the endangered species pygmy rabbit. It could signify a blade of grass, or the 63 moons of Jupiter, or carbon-14 atoms, or a photon, any entity or group of things alike. In the Genesis 1 account, God didn't wait until everything was created to pronounce the creation good. Each portion of the creation, each individual, was called good. And even before creating human beings, he blessed the living creature, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Moreover, he not only values each part of his creation, he cares for it as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that God feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies and grass of the field. Now, I have a confession to make here. I do not understand why God would consider the malaria plasmodia good. I'm even less able to understand why God would create mosquitoes and command them to multiply. But he did, and he does. If I were creating this leg of our chair, my leg would be a kind of plywood with each layer representing the individual parts of creation. I'd probably reject some parts because I don't see their value. And I know that some layers would be much thicker than others because I know they are of more value. The layer representing humans would be the thickest, and it would be located in the middle, where it could be protected by everything else. You see these things out here? They're going to get kicked and bumped in life. We need to be protected. If God were constructing the value of the individual leg on our chair, I think the leg would be more, there would be more parts. They would be more or less the same size. Maybe the humans would be a little bigger because, after all, we are Imago Dei. But we'd be on the outside because, you see, he gave us the task of caring for the rest of his creation. 
he didn't ask plasmodia or mosquitoes to take care of the garden. That was our task. So it would be a little bigger, but it would be on the outside of this chair. Now, I've tried to, this is a cross section, that's the leg. And I hope you're beginning to see what I'm doing here. That's my artwork. Now, I don't want this last point to be misunderstood. I am not advocating the Buddhist principle of banning the killing of animals as sentient beings. And I'm not opposing absolutely the use of animals and experimentation. But in our science and in our science policies, we must be careful not to think of the parts of creation as valuable only as they accomplish some need we have. As bearers of the Imago Dei, we must exercise a godly dominion over creation. And that means we must value each kind of thing that God created for itself and not just for its potential utility to us. Benevolence is the disposition to do good is our second chair leg. I doubt that any of us would argue that our science, our technology, and our public policy should not produce good results. Among the general public, and often even among our science students, we want something that will do good. We want something that will cure diseases. We want something that produces more nutritious or better food, uh, something that will be helpful to us. Now, the biblical basis for this value is in the character and providential activity of God. The psalmist says to Yahweh, The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work, and creatures all look to you to give them their food in due season. In another psalm, he says, You open your hands, satisfying the desire of every living thing. God's caring for his creation that I mentioned earlier and that is alluded to in these passages from the Psalms is an expression of his benevolence toward what he has made. As beings created in his image, we should also be reflecting this value. The writer of the letter to the Ephesians said it this way, For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So what value does good? So, what, so we value what does good. That is science, technology, and policies that are benevolent. Now there are usually at least two underlying assumptions when we take this position. And these assumptions can be problematic. The first is that the beneficiary of the benevolent science is usually me, or at least human beings. When applying the benevolence value to our science, technology, or, policy, uh, or policies, we seldom think, will this be good for earthworms? How will this benefit the planet Jupiter? The disposition to do good usually has as its object or subject me and or my group. Now, does this mean that benevolence is selfish? 
unfortunately, too often yes. The good is evaluated by how it affects me. We are usually not interested in pursuing those things that benefit other entities at the expense of ourselves. A second assumption is that the good is achieved immediately, or nearly immediately. I want what I want when? Now. Immediate gratification is our goal. So give us some sweet corn right now that is inexpensive and tastes good, and let's not think about the future impact on the environment or the integrity of the concept of species or the potential economic effect on third uh, world farmers. Give me, give me. These assumptions mean that the benevolence leg that we construct for our chair is very different from the leg that God would make. God's leg would balance more or less equally the value of the various components of creation. God's leg would not deny the importance of the now, but would balance that with long-term benefits. Our leg would usually accentuate humans in the present. Much of creation would be ignored and omitted. As bearers of the Imago Dei, we must exercise a godly dominion. You're going to keep hearing that. We must exercise a godly dominion over creation, and that means we must value our science, technology, and policymaking as activities that benefit the whole of creation over the span of time, not just what will benefit us now. As we construct our legs, we'll visualize, visualize short-term legs with being fat and long-term ones with thin. By the way, you'll see here that this is part of the creation that's sort of left out because that would not do us any good. The third leg or value is non-malevolence. Now, at first glance, this seems to be the corollary of what we just discussed. If benevolence is doing good, then malevolence, which is having or showing intense and office often vicious ill will, spite, or hatred, desiring harm or evil. That's obviously something we want to avoid. But non-malevolence is not just a negative value. It is a positive command. It guides us positively by urging us not to harm. The value is reflected in the Hippocratic phrase, primum non, non nocere, which means first, not to harm. It reminds us that we must always consider the possible harm our actions can cause. It reminds us that in a given situation, it may be better to do nothing than do something that risks causing more harm than good. On the other hand, sometimes the failure to act can cause harm. For example, let's say that a doctor comes upon the site of an accident and sees a person who's bleeding from a massive head wound. If he put pressure on that wound, he might save a life. If he does nothing, the person will bleed to death. The failure to act caused harm. So what's the biblical basis of this value? First, many of the commandments or instructions are prohibitions about actions that, if done, would harm others. For example, lying, gossiping, murder. They all have negative effects on the one lied about, gossiped about, or killed. Paul wrote to the Romans, 
Do not repay evil for evil. In other words, do no harm. Moreover, the statues God gave the children of Israel and us reflect ways we are not to harm creation. For instance, the land was to be given a sabbatical every seven years. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land. In this command, God is saying, don't harm the land. Don't overuse it. In Deuteronomy, we are told not to muzzle the ox while it is working. The animal that works for us has a right to be fed. But the biblical basis for this value that I think is the most compelling is the grace and mercy God chose towards us. Our sin angers God, and we deserve punishment from God. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God refrains from harming us and instead deals with us benevolently. So what does it mean to do no harm? I define harm as any detrimental effect of significant nature. Immediately we see that there are two words that are open to interpretation, detrimental and significant. If a robber were to cut me open or stab me in the course of a robbery, he would at the very least have assault added to the robbery charge and possibly attempted homicide and even homicide if I should die. Personally, I would call both of those detrimental and significant. (laughs) But cardiac surgeons regularly cut chest open and sometimes break ribs as a necessary precursor to certain kinds of heart treatments. And they are not charged with a crime or with unethical behavior for doing so. Maybe this means purpose has to be taken into account. But another factor is the standards we use for determining that something is harmful. I read somewhere, and here I'm, I'm, I'm showing my bad scholarship. I cannot find that original source. You're just going to have to take my word for it. That European nations and Canada judge a chemical as harmful until it is proven to be safe. Well, the U.S. judges a chemical as safe until it has been shown to cause harm. So part of our problem is how do we determine if something is harmful? And as with our benevolence leg, judgments are often based on the here and now and not on the larger issue of space and time. Why should we be concerned about the actions that might harm the moon in 200 years? Why should we care about the possible extinction of the dwarf lake iris? It's a plant that's currently on the endangered species list whose difficulties are the result of human expansion and the changes we have made in habitations that are really great for us right now. But they're not so good for the dwarf iris, either currently or over time. Somehow, God can practice non-malevolence toward his entire creation throughout time, knowing that his actions are not purposely harmful. The leg he would have on his chair would be carefully established 
It would not have pieces bumping into each other. There wouldn't be a part of the wood that has got a splinter going up into the next layer. They'd be carefully shaped. They don't cause friction as they rub against each other. There wouldn't be a place where one part of the leg has to have more weight, bear more weight than the other. But ours is not going to be quite so well made. We have different shapes that are not so well designed. Sometimes we place an element in such a way that it gets kicked and scraped, and we do so on purpose. So here's our human part, and there's that little piece that we're going to let take the kicks and bumps of life for us. We'll deliberately put it in harm's way to save ourselves. That plywood can get down closer to the floor. Who cares about plywood anyway? Okay, let's talk about our final leg. The final leg is justice. Now, I don't think any of us would disagree that justice is a value extremely important to God and that it expresses an essential part of God's character. The adjectives just and righteous are used frequently to describe God. The psalmist declares righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Nehemiah affirmed, you have been just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully. Jesus addressed God as righteous father in the high priestly prayer. And none of us would deny that God has called us to be just. Our minds quickly jump to that passage in Micah where we are told, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? But our tendency is to think of justice only in terms of human-to-human behavior. Our just behavior towards others is indeed a standard God calls us to. But as you can probably already guess, I believe that God expects us to show justice to the whole of creation. The prophet Isaiah described what happens when we behave unjustly and what uh, would happen when we become just or righteous as God is just and righteous. When we aren't just, Isaiah said, we will, quote, beat our breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Creation suffers from our injustice. But Isaiah also had a promise that if we behave justly, a spirit from on high is poured out on us and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. The effect of righteousness will be peace and the result... And the the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. The ultimate description of justice that affects creation is found in Isaiah's description of the Messiah. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I firmly believe that these are statements of what God wants for his creation, what will be when he redeems his creation, and therefore should be the goal of our interaction with creation. But what is justice? Rather than define it, let me give you some synonyms. Fairness, impartiality, righteousness, even-handedness, integrity. We see justice in the way God deals with us. He doesn't call a foul on us before he explains the rules of the game. He deals with us fairly. He doesn't have one set of rules, punishments, rewards for some people and another set for others. He deals with us impartially. But how does God deal justly with his creation? The first way is by the way he created and creates. Psalm 33 reads, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast Lord of the, uh, love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. Notice the close connection the psalmist made between God's just and righteous character and his creation. God's creative and just word and works sets limits on his components. So the psalmist then continues, he gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle. He put the deep in storehouse. The passage that best talks about these limits, apart from this psalm, I think, is Job 26. I don't have time to read all of that, but I encourage you to go back and read Job 26. The point is that the justice of God is evidenced in the way he creates. The second evidence is the way he relates to his creation. He continues to sustain and care for it. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide the people with grain, said the psalmist. He makes covenants with what he has created, such as animals. We find that in Genesis and in Hosea. Giving hope and promising redemption. I've mentioned one scripture already that points to this passage, the Romans 8 passage. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And that passage ends, for in hope we were saved. Another passage demonstrating God's just relationship to his creation is found in Second Chronicles 7. In this passage, the Lord is speaking to Solomon and says, When I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence upon, among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, who are imago Dei, Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Too often the last part of this passage is misunderstood to mean the nation in our culture. 
But the context makes it clear that God is promising healing and redemption to his creation. But it also makes clear that we must understand that the fulfillment of that promise is dependent in part upon us. So what would God's justice leg look like? I think it would be like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle made up of all the elements of creation fit together in a way that allows each to contribute to the whole and to receive from the others. It would be a dynamic leg with a part sometimes on the outside and sometimes on the inside, sometimes giving, sometimes receiving. Since there's no way I could describe that in a PowerPoint, I'm using a leg with a spiral and trying to show the mix-up in the cross-section. But what about us? What does justice look like when we apply it? Well, we sometimes get it right and often get it wrong. Our biases interfere with our fairness, impartiality, righteousness, even-handedness. And as far as integrity is concerned, Jeremiah said it well. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse who can understand it. As hard as we try, we are better at injustice than justice. Moreover, because of our biases, we seldom think of acting justly toward the rest of the creation. Most of us, at least me, I'm not, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, I can't even conceptualize what acting justly toward outer space might mean. So our leg would exclude some element. So we've got a big hole there. Those we don't think of, those we don't like, like mosquitoes, it would respond to those elements near and not far away. It would be centered on me or us. So we have our four legs. But there's one more thing we need to understand about this chair and its legs. We don't all agree on the relative value of the values. For a minute, let's go back and review our geometry. What do three points that are not in the same line produce? A plane. One plane. But what about four points? To answer this, think of the last time you went to a restaurant with a four-legged table. I always get the table that wobbles. Because four points might be in one plane, but most of the time, two, three, or even four planes are formed because we can't get the legs to be exactly the same length. God's the only one who can make things perfectly, and in our metaphor, he gives equal weight to all four values. Humans, however, tend to place greater significance on one or two of these values than on the others. And because we often can't figure out how to express all four of our values simultaneously, we pick those we will follow and those we will ignore. Maybe we think that valuing the individual is more important than doing no harm. Or maybe we think justice is per preferable to benevolence. But we do make choices, and we'll represent those choices in our analogy by the length of our chair legs. If we think a value is important, we'll show it with a long leg. If we think a value is not so important, we'll show that with a short leg. So let's recap. In our analogy, leg one represents valuing the individual, 
Leg two signifies valuing benevolence. Leg three stands for valuing non-malevolence. And leg four denotes valuing justice. Fat legs represent short-term impacts. Thin legs characterize long-term impacts. A short leg symbolizes that we don't believe the value is important. Long leg means that we hold that value very important. All right. We now see the kind of chair as well as chair legs that represent what God might construct. And we see the variety of chairs and chair legs that humans build. How does this analogy help us make decisions about what scientific research to pursue, how to pursue it, how to apply the learning in terms of technology, or how to develop scientific policy? And how does it help us move from limping to walking? What I'd like for us to do now is to build a metaphorical chair with these legs. We're going to look at a current scientific technological issue that has public policy implications and see, I hope, how the various positions held by Christians and politicians are the results of the way our chair legs are constructed and assembled and how our chairs might be different from God's leg, chair. I think this exercise will provide us the methodology to apply when dealing with other cases. And they should also help us to begin to identify some of the assumptions behind conclusions we draw and those other people with whom we disagree are drawing. Our case study has to do with the use of DDT to prevent malaria. This is a personal matter for me. Since I had 11 malarial episodes during the three years I served as a missionary teacher in Congo. First, some background. DDT was first synthesized by the Austrian chemist Othmar Seidler, but its value of, as an insecticide was only discovered in 1939. During the World War II period, the U.S. began producing DDT in large quantities both for agricultural purpose and as a control for vector-borne diseases, including malaria. While some issues were raised about the dangers of the use of the pesticide, it was only after the publication of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, in 1962, that public concern became widespread. In 1964, the Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Lee Udall, issued a directive that DDT should be avoided unless there was no other option. In early 1969, Wisconsin and then Michigan banned the use of DDT, and in November of 1969, Secretary of Agriculture Clifford Hardin began the revocation of DDT registrations against pests of shade trees, aquatic areas, and other uses. In March 1971, the EPA canceled all registrations for products containing TDE, a DDT metabolite. In, 19, in the 1970s and 1980s, this ban spread throughout the developed world. During this period, the World Health Organization, the UN's public health agency, continued to advocate and still advocates for the use of DDT as an indoor spray against malaria vector mosquitoes. In 2001, more than 100 countries signed the Stockholm Agreement, uh, Stockholm Convention, a UN treaty that banned the use of 12 pesticides, including DDT, except for their use in the control of malaria. In 2006, 
WHO endorsed the spread of DDT in the war against malaria. Then in 2009, the UN urged a drastic reduction in the use of DDT. We have here a scientific, technological, and public policy issue. What might be the Christian responses? And notice the S, responses. We begin by understanding as much as we can what the scientific facts are. The scientific evidence indicates that in humans, DDT is a neurodevelopmental and reproductive toxin. It is more detrimental for infants and children than for adults. It has also been shown to be correlated with low sperm count in men, with certain forms of cancer, and with diabetes. It, is, it may be a direct genotoxin, or it may produce genotoxic intermediates. It also seems to be an endocrine disruptor. But the latest WHO estimates indicate that there are 300 to 500 million cases of clinical malaria per year with 1.4 to 2.6 million deaths. In 2000, the WHO said that children died at the rate of two per minute or 3,000 per day. Between 1972 and 2000, over 50 million people died of malaria. However, where DDT uh, continued to be used, malaria deaths fell. Where DDT use was reduced or eliminated, they skyrocketed. How does this evidence affect how we might construct our chair legs? Saving lives certainly is important if we value the individual. Preventing illness, especially preventing malaria, is obviously doing good. But the third leg creates a problem. DDT also does harm to humans, as I just explained. And as far as our fourth leg is concerned, again, we have contradictory factors. Saving the lives of many individuals, especially in areas that are economically underdeveloped, demonstrates impartiality and fairness. However, this is a short-term result. The long-term result may involve reduced fertility, uh, or it may mean that we are going to create an overpopulation situation in which we don't have enough food and we produce malnutrition. But remember, we said that God values all parts of creation, so we need to see how the use of DDT reflects values other than human. Many kinds of birds, including the bald eagle, peregrine falcons, and California condors, were on the verge of extinction before the use of DDT was banned, and they are returning to more normal population levels with the DDT restricted. DDT is a persistent chemical, and that we can find evidence that it remains in the environment for as long as 40 years. It is insoluble in water, but highly soluble in fats, which means that in an aquatic environment, organisms will store DDT or TDE in organs. In a food web, top predators will have high concentrations of DDT. Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe is a tropical example of this phenomenon. Um, we're going to look at uh, something called food web accumulation. 
In a recent test, the concentration of DDT in the water of the lake was less than 0.002 parts per billion. The concentration in the sediment of the lake was 0.4 parts per million. The algae contained 2.5 parts per million. A filter-feeding mussel contained 10 parts per, billion in, per million in its lipids. Herbivorous fish contained 2 parts per million, while a bottom-feeding species of fish contained 6 parts per million. The tigerfish and the cormorant, both of which feed on small fish, contain five parts per million and ten parts per million, respectively. Finally, the Nile crocodile, which is the top predator in Lake Kariba, contained 34 parts per million. And, of course, humans eat many of these. If our theology teaches us to value the parts of creation as God does, then does the use of DDT show benevolence toward them? It certainly does not exhibit non-malevolence, nor does it demonstrate justice. Are we being fair and impartial in our treatment of the water, the sediment, the plants, the fish, the crocodile? With all of these negatives, why do we continue to use DDT? Because it's cheap, and effective. Other chemicals are more expensive to use and have a shorter residual time, meaning that they must be sprayed more frequently than DDT, and that runs the price up even more. Attempts to develop a malaria vaccine have not been successful. One approach that may have possibilities involves work being done at the University of Arizona to alter the genetics of the Anopheles mosquito. Initial testing showed no transmission of plasmodium by the offspring of the genetically modified mosquito, but much work, expensive, time-consuming work, needs to be done before this approach can even be tested outside of the lab. And we have no assurance that if the modified mosquitoes were able were released, would they be able to compete successfully with the mosquitoes already in the wild? Anti-mosquito nets work if used correctly, but the design of the nets didn't take into account either the need for ventilation in a tropical area or cultural views about disease causation. All right. With this background, including some of the questions I've raised, how do we construct our chairs? What do our chair legs look like? First, let me say that I do not know what God's chair would look like, what his decision would be on this matter. I am confident that he would want us to think about the situation using some of the ideas I've already outlined but I've probably missed some values that should be considered, and I don't know some of the data that should be considered. There are factors that we're ignorant of. One of the things we need to understand is any decisions we make need to be accompanied with humility. So some of us will say that the preservation of human life, 
doing good to human beings is the most important value. It trumps all others. This means that the first and second legs of the chair will be very long. They will also be rather thick, since we're thinking about preventing disease now, about saving lives now. And we're not thinking about the long-term effects of the DDT or the population growth. They will be constructed primarily of human plywood. Not using DDT would produce more harm than using it, given our emphasis on humans. So the third leg is shorter than the first two, but it's still there. And the justice leg is short also, but it includes our concern for the sick and the poor in underdeveloped lands. These last two legs are based on short-term results, so they will be thick. They'll be shorter than the first two legs. Although people in this group give preference to the first two legs, how much preference is given will differ. So there will be a variety of chairs, even when group members think that they're in total agreement. Um, you want to sit on that chair? Ah. Okay. Another group of us will say that the most important legs are the first and the third. Like the first group, the emphasis will be on humans. But individuals in this faction believe that the negative effect of DDT on human beings outweigh the positive effect. Because they're going to take a more long-term look at the issue. They see the neurological problems, the fertility problems, the increased occurrence of cancer, the genetic damages, and the neg other negative outcomes as providing greater harm over time than the short-term beneficial gains can justify. While not denying that some immediate good is produced, these people cannot defend the use of DDT when so many will suffer in the future. They may even appeal to the justice value in their arguments. We should not favor the present generation at the expense of future generations. That's the argument that's used on the national debt, right? As with the first, as with the first group, the leg will be constructed primarily of human plywood and will be thick, but the legs will be longer. Also, like the first group, there will be a variety of chairs because the specific value members assign will not be the same. I don't think I want to sit on that chair either. Whoops. Uh, I'm missing some slides. All right. Some of us, you, you've got the idea of how to make mental pictures now? All right. Some of us may agree with the conclusion of the second group, but for very different reasons. While this third set of individuals value hum human life, they're also concerned for the rest of creation. Their arguments would favor legs three and four, with the first leg a bit shorter. They would say that justice requires that we not tip the impartiality and fairness scale so much toward benevolence for humans that we ignore the non-malevolence for the rest of nature. Like the second group, this one takes a long-term view and would agree with group two that the long-term results for humans are not benevolent. But their primary concern would be negative long-term impacts on the ecosystems. So their chair legs would have less human plywood, which would not be in the center, protected by everything else, but would be protecting other parts of creation. 
I tried to illustrate that in a cross section, but you can't see that anyway. All of the chair legs would be thin, and the first, third, and fourth legs would be long. The second leg would be short. I could continue giving examples of the way we construct our chairs and what the chair legs might look like, but I think that we can see from the illustrations I've given how we can use our views based on our Christian faith to arrive at conclusions about science, technology, and public policy. But I want you to think a bit about those chairs. As I said, I don't think any of us would like to sit on any of them. I'm pretty sure that I would fall off and hurt myself, or the legs would be long and thin and they wouldn't bear my weight, and so I'd fall and hurt myself, and I'd get up and I'd limp around trying to find another chair or to fix my chair, but my biases and maybe my stubbornness would mean I'd be looking for the same kind of chair that I just fell off of. It may be that our problem is that we're too prone to construct our chairs individually and then look for others who have constructed similar kinds of chairs. If we're going to construct chairs that we don't fall off of and that are closer to God's chair, then we're going to have to reason together to decide how to fasten our fashion the chair legs. Perhaps it's my Reformed theology coming through now. But I think that God speaks more clearly through his body than through the individual. Because it's the body we listen to, learn from, teach, correct one another. Making decisions or chairs on our own, or with people who think like we do only, will not help us stop limping. The writer of Ecclesiastes told us that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other, but woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. If we're going to go from limping between various opinions and positions regarding science, technology, and public policy to walking, We'll need to do our analyses carefully and corporately. This is one of the greatest strengths of an organization like ASA. Our analyses may require us to spend more time focusing on the seat and the back of our metaphorical chair before working on the legs. Maybe before we can make a decision on the use of DDT, for instance, we need to find out more about creation. We need to understand its dynamics, its interactions better. Maybe we need to find out what is it about the DDT that affects the eggshells. We need to do some basic research. We'll have to understand that our issues are way too complicated to have easy black, white, right, wrong answers. We'll have to accept that our corporate discernment may take will take more time coming up with an answer than when we do it by ourselves. And we'll need to be prepared to find that a decision made at one point in time was wrong given the new knowledge we have acquired. But I am convinced that this approach is the only way that we can progress toward walking.
Moreover, it is only when we can walk with confidence that we can truly be the moral leaders in these fields that God has called us to be. The task is difficult, but it's not impossible. I cited a passage near the beginning of my talk, which I'm going to use to close. God is at work in us, enabling us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's with that assurance of God's help and his guidance that we can and must accept his call. Thank you.